If you all have a Bible, if you want to turn to 2 Peter today, we're going to be looking in chapter 2, and the title of the message is Beware of False Teachers. Uh, we're going to talk about chapter 1 briefly to begin with. Uh, let's go before the Lord with the word of prayer, and Father, I ask you that you'll be here in our midst today, and I ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, will give us ears to hear what you're saying, and I just ask you'll keep any distractions any wandering thoughts, Lord, that you'll help us to concentrate on your word and what you're saying to us today. And I thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. So I kind of want to give a little bit of background in chapter one, use that just to move into chapter two. But in chapter one, you know, we're not going to go into a lot of detail here at all, but he's basically telling the Christians, here is how you can be grounded in the Christian faith. And he gives eight steps. And I think one good way of looking at this is, is like looking at your heart or your soul is just one big empty room. And Peter's saying it needs to be furnished. And so the first thing he talks about there is that the centerpiece of that room, numero uno in that room. So I'm not a decorator, but I would think when you walk in a room, generally there's something that just catches your attention. And a lot of times it's the picture over the fireplace, isn't it? That's in the manual. You walk in there, you want that to be something striking, and that's what your faith is. It's your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the main thing, isn't it? It's got to be first, and Peter puts that first, commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in 2 Peter 1, he keeps saying, add to this, add to this, or we could say furnish, add this to the furnishings. And the next thing he talks about is virtue or moral excellence the highest standards of uprightness. It says, add to your faith next that. Put that in your room. And then furnish knowledge, he says. Knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, of God, and that comes from studying his word and living by it. Then he says, temperance. Put that in next, your self-control. Perseverance or endurance is what we need. And that comes through hanging through trials and trusting the Lord through our trials. We get that endurance that comes. Then he says godliness, which is just your outward piety. You know, when you see someone and you watch how they walk through this world and they live a godly life, you say that's a godly man. They have an outward piety. And he says then add to that, put in that room brotherly kindness, which is where we get our word Philadelphia. Loving the brethren here. And he says, and over all of that, the last thing he says is love. So look at it this way. Picture it in your mind. When you walk into the room of a Christian into his heart, it should be beautifully furnished, so to speak, with faith as the picture over the fireplace mantle. There's a lamp there that's virtue. Knowledge is a desk that's in that room. Temperance is the rug that's in there. Perseverance and godliness are two tables that are set in that room. Brotherly kindness is the couch you sit on and fellowship in. And love is what? It's the fire that's burning in that fireplace. It's given light and warmth to the entire room. And I'm saying that's what he says when you look at a Christian. That's the way it should be. That's the good side. And so why does he say, why is that exhortation given to have those things? It's important because look in verse 10 of chapter 1. He says it makes... Your calling and election sure. Verse 10, wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And that's done by adding all of those things because he says if you don't back in verse 9 that you're blind and you've forgotten what God's delivered you from. But he says if you'll do all those things, if you do these things, he says you will never fail. You'll never fall. So we need to be diligent, work hard that we have those things in our lives, in our hearts. 
And he also goes on to say in verse 11 that it will give us an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. For so an entrance, verse 11, shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't want to just be squeaking in hoping we're going to make it. He's saying you can have an abundant, assured entrance into his kingdom. If you do those things, you're not going to wonder whether you're one of the elect. You're not going to be constantly struggling with doubt and fears if you add those things. That's what he's telling us there. So he's telling them then, because in verse 14, he's saying, look, I'm getting ready to die soon. He knew he was getting ready to die. And he said, I'm just wanting to keep you all in remembrance of these things. That's how important it is, is what he's telling them. And he's saying, he goes on to say towards the end of that first chapter there, the reasons you can know that, you can know and trust what I'm telling you about all this, because he's going to contrast that in chapter two with the false apostles. He's saying, look, these people are making up stories. They're making up the ways of righteousness. He says, but we... We and the other 11 apostles, the ones you're standing on this word, the one that's telling you this is how you can make it into heaven. He's saying, we saw the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. We heard that voice from heaven. And he says, not only that, but he goes on to say, look there at the very end of that chapter. He says, for we also, verse 19, have a more sure word of prophecy, wherein you do well that you take heed. He's referring to the Old Testament prophets and what they've said. Don't just believe me. He's saying what I'm saying on is also comes from the Old Testament prophets. You t do well to take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this, that the, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Verse 21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He's saying those words that you have in the entire Old Testament spoken by those prophets, that's the Spirit of God that spoke through them. You can trust it. It's a sure word of prophecy is what he's saying. And what he's telling them in that chapter one is he's like, you want to make it to heaven, don't you? Like I said, you don't want to just squeeze in by the skin of your teeth. He's saying, here's what you need to do. Make sure your heart, your life, your soul is filled with all those things. Faith, virtue, knowledge, love, temperance, all of those things. And he said, then you'll have an abundant entrance. I want to remind you all of that. A sure word of prophets came from the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets. And the reason is, is because he goes on to say, and we'll start reading here in chapter two. So he says, though you were true prophets in the Old Testament, but, he says in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, there were also what? False prophets among the people. He's talking about back in Israel. Because here's the principle. Anytime you have something true, every time you have a true word, you're going to have a false word and a false prophet. It has been that way since the beginning. And so he says there were those great prophets that you should take heed to, chapter 1, but there were also false prophets among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many, it says, shall follow their pernicious, the word means sensual, sensual ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. And now he's going to give the reasons why we can know that their judgment and damnation will come. Because he's going to give us three examples of where that did happen. 
He says, first of all, he said, God didn't spare the angels that sinned, but he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And he spared not the old world, but he saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. He said he brought in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, sure judgment, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. But on the other hand, in case your heart gets fearful, he said, but he delivered just a lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing, he vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their ungodly, unlawful deeds. He says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, but he also knows how to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these men, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. I mean, those are some strong words there which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, the same word as sensuality, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. And while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning." For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now that chapter 2 is entirely talking about the false teachers and describing how they ensnare people and what their conduct and character is like. So Fox News, I saw a report one time. I had a guy on there. He's a white man. He was 25 years old. He spoke perfect English. He knew all of our slang. And no one would have ever suspected this guy. But what he said was chilling. Because what he said is that Americans cannot escape jihad. And other jihadists were coming here to kill us. And there is no way that we could escape. And here's the thing. Who would suspect this man? He looked as American as everybody I'm looking at right now. You never would suspect him. And they had an, an analyst on Fox News at the time, 
And he was talking about that, and he says, look, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people like that already in the United States. In fact, I met one in prison one time. Big, burly, white guy, looked like he could come from any neighborhood, and this guy was as American as you could get. He was a jihadist, more or less. He's telling me he's totally in favor of Muslims. He would join up with them in a heartbeat. I'm just listening to all this thing, and this is crazy. But to look to this guy, if he wasn't saying what he was saying, you would never suspect him in 100 years. He wasn't Muslim at all. He's as white as white could be. And that is the way that we're learning here from Peter that false doctrine and destruction comes within a church. Someone, he's saying, we're learning, they come in, they look, they talk, they live with you, and that's what it's like. They talk Christian talk. They'll quote scriptures, but their intent is to spread false doctrine. So, you know, the one extreme is like you're looking at your neighbor and thinking, my wife? I mean, you know, or you're suspicious of everybody. Well, it's not to be suspicious, but it's just that's the way it goes. We have had it through the years happen here, and it comes in a subtle way. So what we have here in 2 Peter 2 is that Peter is saying false teachers will be in the church leading themselves and others. This is the point we're going to look at today, to destruction. And what he says here in verse 1 is, like he said, they were in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament days, there were false prophets. And he's not saying there might be false teachers. He is saying, look in verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people. And he says, even as there what? He doesn't say it might happen. He says what? It shall be. It will be. False teachers among us. So he's saying it's as certain as the rising and setting of the sun. It's a warning. It's as certain as taxes will be. Because Jesus himself, what did he say? He predicted in Matthew 7, 15, he tells us beware of false prophets. In Matthew 24, he says many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. The Apostle John says many false prophets are already gone out into the world, and that's 1 John 4, 1. That's way back at the beginning of the church it was taking place. So there was false prophets throughout the entire Old Testament period. This is the sermon I was going to preach today, and I got sidetracked into this. But every time Jehoshaphat, and they're getting ready to go to war, and he's joining up with these ungodly kings of Israel, they've got their prophets, right? And they're saying, we're prophets of the Lord. And there's 400 of them. And he's like, wait a minute, you know, I'm hearing these guys, but where is a prophet from God? So I'm saying there's always been false prophets around. It's always been the case, and he's saying it will be today, and we need to be aware of that. But he says they're what? It's one thing if they were out there in the periphery somewhere, but he, what does he say there? He says, even as there shall be false teachers, where? Where does it say there in verse 1? He says they will be among you. Like I said, they'll look like you, they'll talk like you, they'll be religious, they'll pray with you. So they don't show up in a church ranting, raving, blaspheming. That's not the way a false prophet makes his entrance and gets in. They come in smiling, talking sweetly, quoting scriptures. Praise the Lord. They gain your trust that way. Otherwise, you wouldn't trust somebody that was just an outright and right unregenerate, would you? And that's the way it works. Jude, who we'll look at here in just a little bit, Jude 4 says that there are certain men, he warns the church there, that crept in unawares. It says, or who secretly slipped in, or who crept in unnoticed. No one noticed them. And maybe they weren't that way at first. 
things can change. People can change. So they're able to join a church. The point is they chum and they join a church and there are no alarm bells going on. They don't trip the sensor we have out there for false prophets and teachers. They just didn't go off. They, they somehow got in there. They got past that. But Jesus told us, he told us to beware. I said, Matthew 7, 15, many beware of false prophets which come to you. And how does he say they come in the Sermon on the Mount? Come to you in sheep's clothing. But he says, but on the inside, he says, they're ravening wolves. Outwardly, they look like sheep, but inwardly, they are wolves. I'm reading that, and you get that picture. You know, you see those old cartoons where there's that wolf, and he sees the big fat sheep down there. And what does he do? He puts on that sheep thing, you know, but he's got his big nose usually sticking out in the cartoons, but he tries to get amongst them to look just like them. And that's kind of the picture you get, and that's what Peter's telling us here. But he says they'll sneak in amongst you. And what does he say that they bring? Damnable heresies. So by heresies, what he's talking about is it's teachings, it's opinions. Damnable, destructive. It's destructive opinions that come in. And it says they will send people to hell. That's what it says. Paul warns the people in Ephesus, the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, he says this. For Paul says, I know something, for I know this. He says that after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And he says, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So Paul says, these grievous wolves will come in and they'll speak perverse things. Now he doesn't mean perverted things. By perverse things, it's when you call somebody to, they're on a path and you cause them to get off and twist off that path is what that word means. Crooked or perverted. And so here's what we have, Acts 13.10, that same word is used. When Elimaeus, the sorcerer, Paul's witnessing to him and that Roman official, and he's trying to talk him out of the faith that Paul's presenting the truth. And Elimaeus, the sorcerer, is trying to twist what's being said. And Paul said this to him. He says, oh, full of subtlety and all mischief, you child of the devil thou enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease, and here's the word, to pervert the right ways of the Lord. So it's a twisting of what is right. God's ways are straight, but a false teacher is going to just twist them enough. It's going to send you the wrong direction, down the wrong path. It says literally it will send you to destruction, and that is serious. So Look at it like this. You've got a potter, and he's got a vessel on a wheel. And you see, when they spin that thing around, you're like, man, that thing looks perfect, doesn't it, when they have it? But one slip, one whatever, all of a sudden, this beautiful, intended to be beautiful vessel becomes distorted or twisted. And it's no longer what it was meant to be, that original beauty. It's distorted in a grotesque way. And that's what he's talking about here, distorted truth. So scripture's used, any cult, any error that's being taught that's effective within the church, it's going to be based on some scripture. I'm telling you though, people, it just seems to me that if somebody comes and they got a smile on their face and it's praise the Lord, they can almost present anything biblical and people are just, oh yeah, because nobody wants to be the one to say, wait a minute, something's not right here. That's, that's a little bit off. And we need to get back to having some discernment about things, about things that are, what are being said. So it's distorted truth. 
So he's saying they're bringing in damnable heresies. Like I said, it's destructive opinions. But here's the question is, what exactly are they? What is he talking about here, these destructive opinions? So he explains it. He goes on to say, look, it says right there, look in verse 1, he says, Even as there shall be false teachers among you who shall privily bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. So what does that mean? They're going to deny that God exists? Deny the Lord Jesus exists? No, we're, they're not over in England where they deny the resurrection. It's not that. That's not what he's talking about there. So the same expression, if you would put something there in 1 Peter and just turn a few books back to Jude, he uses the same expression and gives us a little clearer idea of what he's talking about in Jude 4. So we're talking about how does this base get distorted? So... Jude and Peter run parallel in a lot of ways. They say a lot of the same things. So Jude 4, it says, for there are certain, you guys in chapter 1? Just kidding. <laughs> certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. They crept in unawares. Ungodly men, turning, what? The grace of God into lasciviousness. And in doing that, here's the expression that we saw in Peter, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are these doctrines? What's these heresies? They're turning the grace of God, which is what I want to talk about mainly today. They're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. So can anyone in here define lasciviousness? You don't need to. This is Sunday. You don't speak out on Sunday. That's just Wednesday night you can, right? Just having you think. What do you think lasciviousness means? That's a word we're not using all the time, are we? I haven't heard that on ESPN lately. What it means is it's an absence of self-restraint, shameless conduct, indecency. It's somebody saying, I'm not crucifying the flesh at all. I'm going to give in to. It's mainly talking about sexual things, but it could be anything. I'm just giving in to my flesh. You get the idea of people, when they party, buddy, you get fights, you get anger, you get things because people are, they quit restraining themselves, don't they? They do all kinds of lewd things. That's what he's talking about here turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. So I got six translations here on that verse. And listen to the different translations, and it should give us a picture of what's being said. Turning the grace of our God into promiscuity. Pervert the grace of God into sensuality. That's the ESV. Distorting our God's grace into immorality. Turn the grace of our God into a license for evil. If you have an NIV, it says change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. The NLT, which I don't recommend, but it says saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. And that's part of this perverted teaching. So turn back to 2 Peter 2. And so that word lasciviousness is used three times. It's just never translated that in 2 Peter, but it's the same word. So we have it in 2 Peter 2.2 where it says because of their teaching. So what, what I'm trying to point out here by this is saying that Jude and Peter are not talking about two different things. What it means to deny the Lord. What it means to bring in destructive opinions. Because in Peter he says, verse 2, and many he says shall follow there where it says pernicious that's another word. I'd like to get everybody to write down their definition of permission and see how close it is. It's the same word as lasciviousness. 
This word for no self-restraint, shameless conduct, immorality, pernicious, sensual. So it's there. It's down in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, And he delivered just Lot, who was vexed with the same word, the sensual conduct, the lascivious conduct of the wicked, of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, We know what they were doing. That wasn't good. And then it's also down in verse 18, the same word. These men, it says, when they speak great swelling words, these false teachers of vanity, they allure. That means they catch with a bait through the lust of the flesh and through much, there's the word again, much wantonness is that same word lasciviousness. Through much lasciviousness, lack of restraint, those that were clean escaped from those who live in error. And it's mainly talking about these guys will move in and they find people that they can get through their little sexual innuendos or whatever. They find weak women. People that had been saved are the Lord's and they're saying through that they entice them and get them involved in this. That's one of the characteristics of a false teacher. And that's what happens. So there we have that word used three times, the same word. It's just not translated lasciviousness in 2 Peter 2. They're talking about the grace of God. The doctrine of the grace of God, it's a beautiful vase, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing, so to speak. And we sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we know that God's grace is his goodness towards those, all of us here, have experienced God's grace to one degree or another, even if the sun's shining on you today and not hail if you're an unregenerate here, an unbeliever. That's God's grace. That's what we've learned. But it comes towards us that only deserve punishment. His grace came and gave us saving faith, didn't it? Opened our eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ was the answer to our dilemma. Freely given on God's part, we know that you can never earn it. Psalm 103 says the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I read this one time. I thought this was really good. He says grace, it's more than just unmerited favor. Because he says if you feed a tramp on the street that doesn't have any food, he says that's unmerited favor. He didn't deserve you to do that, right? But it's scarcely grace because he says, but suppose that after robbing you, You take that same tramp and feed him at a restaurant. He's saying that's grace because that's really how God's grace has been extended to us. It wasn't just we were just poor people. No, we were his enemies. We spit in his face. And yet he turned and died for us. That's grace. That's biblical grace. So Jude says they're denying the Lord by turning the grace of God into a license for evil or immorality. Like I said, they're taking that beautiful vase and they're distorting it into something else, a license to sin. And to say you have a license to do something means you have permission to do it. I'm building a stairway in my house. Well, going on there, I didn't know I needed to get permission to just change my handrail in my house. But sure enough, the city of Louisville came and they're like, you need a license or you're not doing it. We're going to fine you and take your house, I guess, eventually. But I had to get a license. I had to get permission. And he's saying... The grace of God they're teaching these false teachers is giving you permission, a license to sin. And that is a very popular teaching. It's coming in many subtle forms today. I'm saying y'all need to listen in a lot of ways, I'm telling you. You know, the, the basic way is you're not saved by works. No, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. Amen to that. And they'll go on, though. That doesn't mean after that you just you do whatever you want to. They'll say your works can't damn you. 
you've confessed Jesus as Lord, nothing can separate you from his love. So if you sin, don't fret it. God's grace covers all. We went to a church one time. We were down in Florida. That was the predominant teaching. This place was fairly crowded. And it was the postman, you know. He delivered to me chick tracks. He thought it was pornography. I said, no, it's not chick tracks. They're chick tracks, not chicks. And he's, we get to talk, and he's like, well, why don't you come to our church? I'm like, sure. We get to, that was what this church taught. You can never lose God's love, whatever. You're a child of his. It's coming up here in a few weeks. Thunder over Louisville. I'd recommend anybody got a heart for the loss. It's a great place to get a few guys together and go there and witness. One time I was there, I had this group of about eight or ten people. They look like they're in their young 20s, I guess. So the pastor's daughter, she's the loudest of the group. Okay, so I'm talking to him about, hey, you know, you all are lost. You violated God's law, da-da-da-da-da. Oh, no, she jumps in there. Wait a minute. No, quoting in my face, Romans 8, for I'm persuaded neither death nor life nor angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm like, that is a pretty impressive list. That's hard to argue with. I'm saying, I'm realizing there's something not right here with all this that's going on. And she's justifying herself. And I said, you know, but there's one thing that's missing from your list that's in there that can separate you from the love of Christ. And I said, that's sin. And I quoted her Isaiah 59, 1 to 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it can't save. Neither is ear heavy it can't hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And she wasn't the least bit convinced she had a boyfriend standing there. The way this works when you go out and witness on the streets a lot of times is you get these little crowds around you, and the big mouth that's talking to you, generally they're not always the ones you're really talking to because who you're talking to is the other ones in the crowd. They're listening. Well, I could tell her boyfriend's listening, and I could see conviction all over his face. I'm realizing you two are living with each other. And I asked her that, and they were. Because she'd heard her dad's teaching all this time. She's hardened against what was being said. And I said, look, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 says this, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters. It's like Paul was saying the other day. I liked what he said. If you're presently that, because Paul goes on to say, he lays that list. He says, no fornicator, no one living in fornication is going to inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't kid yourself. God's grace doesn't cover that. He says, but such were some of you. And like Paul said, you've got pornography in there, and you're violating Matthew 5. Jesus clearly says you're headed to hell if you don't repent. Now, you may repent. She may repent. I don't know. I'm not saying that. But at that present time, she's living with this guy. They're perishing. And she's quoting me Bible verses like everything's okay. He knew everything wasn't okay. I could tell that. She listened to her father's false gospel for years. And that's what she believed. She could do whatever she wanted. She had a license, permission to sin. But is that what God's grace is all about? Giving us a license to sin? So turn over to Titus 2, if you would. Verses 11 and 12. Look what it says there. Here's what the grace of God does for Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, And it's teaching us something, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. Here's what it teaches us. We should live soberly, 
righteously and godly in this present world. So based on that, does the grace of God teach us that we can live carelessly in sin? You know, just what's just a little cussing, a little anger, a little lust, just a little peek every now and then, just a little theft, just a little overcharging? Is that what it teaches us? It says it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. And to deny, you know what that means? Not to deny they exist. It means to renounce them. To renounce them. It's the same word that is used of Peter when he denied the Lord in the high priest's garden. Matthew 26, 72, it says, And again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. He swore with an oath. He renounced him, saying, I've got nothing to do with him. I've got nothing to do with him. And Titus is saying that's what grace teaches us, to renounce sin like Peter did with Jesus. You have to say, I want nothing. That's what grace teaches us when sin comes. We're to say to it, I want nothing to do with you. I renounce you. I like what Paul said. Paul, I'm going back to Paul again. I like that filter illustration. Take what you're getting ready to do through that filter See what the Bible has to say about it. See if the Bible gives you license to do what you're about ready to do. That gossip, the backbiting, the anger, the look at that pornography. See if the Bible gives you license, if you can put it through the filter of the Bible. I like that illustration. That's a good way of looking at it. So when you're tempted to look at pornography, grace is instructing you to renounce it, deny it. Not to go ahead and think, oh, well, God's grace will cover that. So grace is saying, I give you the power to live above lust. Don't give in, renounce it. It's there to empower us to live above the last anger, depression, fear, and so on. That's what the grace of God will do for us. So if you would, too, turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. I know everybody's just thinking. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 to 16. And look what it says. This is an encouraging thing. This will show you what grace will do. You get in a temptation, you get in a trial. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. It says, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, how, but yet without sin. So he's saying, you're in a severe temptation, whatever it is. Here's how you overcome it. He says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of what? Grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. Isn't that what you need in time of need? That temptation's and it's strong and your flesh is crying out, it wants to do this, that, or the other. He's saying, that's the time to put the brakes on. And man, it may just be a silent prayer you're saying. You're talking to somebody and in your mind you're like, God, I need grace to not react. And he says he'll give it to you. He'll give you that mercy and help, that spiritual help through the Holy Spirit to help you overcome that sin. That's what God's grace, it will empower us to overcome sin and also to live a godly, righteous life. That's what the purpose of God's grace is. Michael Brown, I don't know how many of you know him, Converted Jews, got the baptism. And 
I may not agree with all of his teaching, but he's got some good things to say on holiness. And so he was talking about Romans 6.14. In Romans 6.14, you don't have to turn there. It says this, it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under the law, but you're under grace. And he talked about that verse. And he says, one believer will say, well, look, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Taking it wrongly, he's saying some believers will take that verse wrongly to mean God understands my sins and doesn't condemn me for them. He receives me just the way I am, regardless of how I live. See, some will look at that verse like, oh, I'm not under the law, the law can't condemn me, I'm under grace. He says, but another believer says, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, and taking it correctly to mean this. Through grace, I'm not only forgiven for my sins, but I can now live above sin. Whereas the law could only point out my shortcomings, God's grace can transform my nature. That is the biblical power of what grace is. Now, how many people do you hear talking about it that way? Well, that's what God's grace is. It's not just, oh, I've done all these evil things. No, it's God's grace is I'll give you the power to live a godly life. That's what it is. Something amazing. Yes, his grace forgave our sins, didn't it? And brought us and opened our eyes and all of those things. Amen, amen, amen. But it continues to do something amazing for us. And that is empowering us to live a godly life. That's what we just read back in Titus. Can you just go back there again? I want to read that again. It's just a great verse. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it's teaching us that renouncing, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live. Here's what it's teaching us. This is what it will enable us to do. Soberly, righteously, and godly in the millennium. Is that what it says? It says, in this where? present world. Does that mean it's possible? We have to be bound by our sins? Besetting sins? Oh, I've just always been this way. My dad was this way. I can't help myself. God's grace says no. The grace says no. I can transform you. You don't have to be that way all of your life. Come to me. Another godly man, old writer William Barclays, his name, he said this. I thought this was good. Grace is not only a gift, it is a grave responsibility. A man cannot go on living the life he lived before he met Jesus Christ. He must be clothed in a new purity and a new holiness and a new goodness. The door is open, but the door is not open to the sinner to come and remain a sinner, but for the sinner to come and become a saint that's what grace does. It makes you a saint. It doesn't say, just stay on the way you are, do the best you can, and I'll cover all that. That's not what God's grace is all about. Amen? I mean, I thought we looked at that in Titus 2. We read it twice. <laughs> just to drive home the point. So listen, to illustrate that, you're living in New York City. You're a businessman. You get this urgent message that you've got to be in London in 24 hours. Well, you're not going to walk there in 24 hours. You're not going to drive a car there in 24 hours. And no boat's going to get you there in 24 hours. So what do you do? You get on a plane, right? A plane will get you there in plenty of time. And the plane can do what we can't possibly do. 
fly. <laughs> Seven miles high at 600 miles an hour. It does what we can't do, and it'll get us there, right? But unless you get on that plane, it won't do you any good, will it? And if you decide to jump off that plane in mid-flight, guess what? You're dead. It didn't get you there either. And that's how it is with God's grace. It does for us. We just read it in Hebrews 4. What we can't possibly do ourselves makes us free from sin. Back to Romans 6.14. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under the law. All the law can do is point out how wicked you are. It gives you no power over sin. He says, sin's not going to have dominion over you. You're not under the law, but you can get dominion over it because you're under grace. That's what it's saying. Frees us from sin, pronounces us righteous. It does like the plane, soars us up into heavens. Like I heard a guy say one time, all religions point towards a certain standard, but none of them, none of them give you the power to get up to that standard. You're always falling short. You're always wishing you could be up there. But Christianity is different from any other religion because the Lord Jesus Christ, his standard's way higher than anybody else's. And he says, hey, that's the standard. You got to get up there. And you're like, I can't get up there. He says, no, I'll come and live in you and I will take you up there. That's the beauty of Christianity. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's by His Spirit and by His power that we can attain. No other religion gives you what Christianity does. So, it's talking about the doctrine of grace. It's not a license to sin, to deny the Lord. And why does it say that? Why does it say that denying the Lord, when you have that perversion, you're denying the Lord? And I'll tell you why. Because that's the reason the Lord Jesus Christ came and died on that cross. That's the reason he came. To create a holy people. That's what we're to be. Who can live with him in the New Jerusalem for eternity. Because you know the book of Revelation. Who is not allowed to enter those gates? The unholy. And what does it say without holiness? It says no man will see the Lord. That's why he came. Are we still in Titus? We read 11 and 12. And look what it says in verse 14, just what I just told you. So it says, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, died on the cross. Why that? That is telling us why, that he might redeem us from all sin, iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. He's saying that's why he died and gave himself, that he can redeem a people, redeem us from all sin and purify a people, zealous of good work, a peculiar people, a set apart people. That's the reason he died. And so to teach, you can live however you want to and live in sensuality and look at pornography and live with somebody and live a debauched life and to somehow say that's God's grace. It's a perversion. You're denying what grace is all about is the point. That's what it's saying. Gave himself for us to free us from every kind of lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are truly his, who are eager to do good. To say that you can live in sin is to deny or renounce the very reason Jesus came to earth. Matthew 1.21, when the angel appeared to Joseph, he said this, he said, and she, Mary, shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save 
his people from their sins. That's the reason he came. Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. That's why he came. So, back to 2 Peter 2. What's the result? What's the end result for those that deny the Lord by living in sin? Look what it says there. So it says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, opinions, even denying the Lord that brought them. And what does it say at the end? And they'll bring on themselves swift destruction. And swift means it's coming soon without delay. So you're like, man, well, I heard a guy that he was saying some stuff. I knew it wasn't right. And he's saying exactly what you're saying. And lightning hadn't hit him yet. It will one day. Psalm 73, that guy, the psalmist was getting real discouraged. He's like, man, I look at how I'm trying to live a godly life and it sure doesn't seem to be paying. And I look at all these ungodly people and they're prospering, they're fat, they're happy, they're healthy. And he says, wait a minute, I went into the sanctuary and God showed me their end. Because in light of eternity, even if they get away with it for 40 years, 30 years, 70 years, 100 years, what's that in comparison to eternity? And he's saying their destruction will be swift. That's the same word where it says there's swift destruction. It's the same word for damnable heresies. And he's saying, hey, it is serious. It's very serious what he's saying. It's very serious how we interpret scripture and what we hear. I'm saying... There are all kinds of teaching out there to where it's all about grace. It's all about love. And so when you say that, that's the thing. Who wants to say, oh, it's not about grace and love? It is. And we've taught that many times here, haven't we? Like we're saying, it's truth that's distorted. It's emphasized in the wrong way. Because, let me just say it this way, you don't ever, hardly ever, it was mocked in places I've been. Here, teaching on hell. Oh, that's back in the day, hellfire and brimstone preaching, or preaching on the fear of God, or preaching on without holiness, you will not see God, or if you lust after women, you'll be in hell, or about respect for authority and the government, or go and sin no more. Go and sin no more, not a little more, lest a worse thing come upon you. That's the Lord. I didn't didn't write that in there. Here's where the deception comes in. So most Christian teachers, they aren't going to blatantly say just live however you want to. They don't. But they leave things out. And they only preach on certain things. Prosperity, the good life now. God wants you happy. On and on and on. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. And you never hear them preaching about plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot. You never hear him preaching about those that are covetous will not inherit the kingdom of God, that greed will damn your soul. You know why they won't preach on that? Because they're getting ready to hit you up for money. That's one of the main things. So why are they going to preach against that? Or that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. And on and on and on. So I've been around groups, you can listen to rock music, you can listen to country western music, you can watch R-rated movies, and they'll preach about them in their sermons. Well, we've all seen such and such. I'm like, I've never seen that. Why would you watch that? I don't know how you justify those things. 
But that's the way it is. And Jesus says, hey, beware of false prophets, false teachers that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly says they're ravening wolves. And he says, how are you going to know them? How did he teach us that we could know them? By their fruits, their lives, the actions and the actions of their listener, the fruit that's being produced. So I would just say, hey, is the message you're listening to produce the characteristics of 2 Peter 2, 1? The first chapter, does it produce virtue, moral excellence, temperance, godliness, brotherly kindness, or love? Or does it produce the feeling, hey, I can do whatever I want type thing, or love is all that matters, right? It's the holiness. Holiness is not going away. That's the Bible. Amen? The message of the false prophets. So that's where we'll end today. Amen. Let's bow our heads. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word of warning, which really is, Lord, a word of love from you, that through your warnings you correct us in our thinking, correct us in our theology, correct us in our practice, that we realize, Lord, that grace is not given to us to excuse our sin, but to help us to overcome our sin, to help us to grow into a holy people, your people, and that that is the reason you died, to redeem us from all iniquity, to deliver us from sin, that sin no longer has to have dominion over us. And I thank you, Lord, for what you've done on the cross. I ask you to give us all ears to hear, to think about what was said today, and for it not just to be another message. And I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen. All these pieces broken and scattered In mercy gathered, mended and whole Empty-handed, but not forsaken I've been set free I've been set free Amazing grace How sweet the sound That saved a wretch like me
Praise the Lord. 